Today's reading is Psalms 119, 97 through 104. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from the evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. You may be seated. Thank you, Weston. So, when we think about reading the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible, we probably have a different feeling than David did when he wrote this psalm. You can hear the delight, the love in his psalm for God's word, these first five books of the Bible. Now, we may love and enjoy reading Genesis and Exodus because we know that they're full of big stories, right? They're familiar. And, and while there are big stories in the rest of them, in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy as well, they're just a little more intimidating. How many of you have ever been intimidated by reading Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy? Yeah. When I went to Bible college in 2003, I'd been a Christian for about two years. And I was very excited to go to Bible college, but I had this really terrible idea when I went. And so in my first semester, I had to go into an Old Testament course. And I had this, this thought to myself that I was going to be a, a Christian that cared about the New Testament. And that the Old Testament was just not going to be that big of a deal. And I actually said this to my professor. And it is a testimony to his graciousness that uh, I, did, I wasn't just sent out. This subject you spent all this time getting a PhD in, I'm just not sure it's that valuable. Because when I was 20, I knew everything. Can anyone relate to that? Now, if you can relate to be, me in that story, to having a, a much closer attachment to the New Testament than the Old I want to tell you I understand, and in fact, in many ways, that's the good and right way to see our Bible. The gospel begins with Matthew. Now, everything that comes before that is important. It informs, it enriches, it is a communication of a loving God to his people. But of course, we favor the books where we read the words of Jesus and his apostles. And so, if you relate to this idea of not being so excited about Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, then it may not be very exciting for you to hear that we're going to be looking at these three books for the next three months. Now, when I went to Bible college and had this opinion about the Old Testament, I had no idea 
about what I was missing. And I want you to know that I think at the end of this series, you're going to see these books in a new light. You're going to see how God reveals his incredible love and faithfulness, how we can better understand the sacrifice of our Lord and how these books can apply directly to your life. And we're going to look at each of them this morning. And so I'd like to to give you our sermon summary today. Our sermon summary is this. We don't worship a God who abandons us when things go wrong. We worship a God who redeems, who provides, and who makes things new again. I know that's a little longer than usual, so I'll read it again for the note takers. We don't worship a God who abandons us when we go wrong. We worship a God who redeems, who provides, and who makes things new again. And so what we want to do with this morning is to introduce the series we're going to be in for the next few months. So I want to dive in. But in order to dive in well, we have to start at the very beginning. When God created humanity, he gave us a unique role in creation. Genesis 1.26 sums it up for us perfectly. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. There's a lot there, but for the purpose of this morning, I just want to say this. Being made in his image and being called to rule means that we are his representatives. God is king. God is the ruler, and he wants to rule through us. But then there's another side of it. It's Psalm 19. I want to read the first few verses of Psalm 19. You can listen or follow along. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. So we are made to be kind of like an angled mirror. Made in God's image, his representatives, to show his goodness and love into the creation, to the people and the world around us. We represent him to the world. And we are part of this creation. This creation that was made among, for, for many reasons, but one of those being to praise and worship its creator. And so, as part of that creation, we sum up and reflect back the worship of the creation to God. We shine his goodness and love to the world, and we return the world's worship and praise to him. That's how we were made to be. It's what we were originally made to do. It's the first responsibility given to human beings in the Bible, and it remains our primary function to be this angled mirror. Human beings are like conduits, showing the goodness and love of God to the world and summing up the worship of the creation 
and reflecting it back to the Creator. But now, if if you're familiar with the beginning of the Bible, you know that this doesn't go very well for very long. It's only the third chapter of the Bible when the plans go off the rails and sin enters the world and the fall happens. And if we were reading the story for the first time, if you'd never heard it before and you picked up the Bible and you read just a few chapters in and you see this monumental dropping of the ball by these people that are supposed to be God's representatives to creation, made in his image, right there in the third chapter, you might be tempted to wonder, is God going to continue with his plan at all? It didn't seem to work, so won't he just erase it and start again? I mean, it's only three chapters in, right? It'd be easy to start over. There's something that we need to know that's very important for us to always remember, and it's this. We don't worship a God who abandons us when things go wrong. We worship a God who redeems, who provides, and who makes things new again. And so each of the first five books of the Bible play a special role in revealing God's plan to redeem and renew the fallen world. In Genesis, we have the story of creation and the fall. We have the first promise of redemption. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 is amazing. God promises then and there in the wake of the original sin that he's going to send a human being to overcome and undo the work of the evil one. The first prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ is right there in chapter 3 of Genesis. And then the rest of the book, we see him take the first steps into making that promise come true. And then there's Exodus, right? We preached through this last year. We learned there that God is a God who rescues his people. He never abandons them. He doesn't start over. He redeems them. And he makes them a new people again. And then come Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I want to take a few minutes and look at each one here. So at the end of the book of Exodus, God gives his people instructions to make something. They're called to make the tabernacle. And it's this tent that God would stay in and would travel among his people. So when they moved, he would go with them. You see, the gods in the ancient world, they had temples. They were thought to be stationary. God is a God who goes with his people. He never leaves or abandons them. But since he would really be there, there was a problem. Because God is holy. And since the presence of God was truly in the tabernacle, the people had to learn how to live in his presence. Because holiness is dangerous. When you try to figure out what does holy mean, it's really hard because the word literally means something else. So you can come up with any definition for holy that you want to, except that the word means that he's something else. He's just different. He's unique. There is nothing like God in existence. And you have to be pure to be close to him. You can think of him like the sun. Holiness is kind of like the sun. The sun is good. We are glad for the sun. But if you get too close to it, you're burned up. 
God's holiness works that way. And we see the few times in Scripture when people come close while impure and it goes terribly wrong. But God is holy and he calls his people to be holy. And for us, that's something else. That means something else than what God's holiness is, which is something else. I guess that was a sentence I didn't think through before I, before I wrote it. For us, our holiness means that we are set apart. We're called to a specific task. We have a specific purpose to serve and to worship our Lord. That's what our holiness is. And Leviticus is a book that explains just how much the creation has fallen. As you read the book, you get this sense The fallenness has affected everything. We worship a holy God, and he made creation to have a perfect order, to be pure, and to continually lift up praise and worship to him. But when the fall happened, when sin enters the world, the result of sin is death. God made humanity to have life eternal, but the result of sin is death. And as you read through the book of Leviticus, you see that that when something becomes impure or unclean, it's because in some way death has touched it. Whether it's blood from a person, because blood is what gives a person life. Blood makes something unclean. Over and over again, you see that touching something that's dead makes a person unclean or impure. Because death changes The order of creation makes the pure impure. It makes the clean unclean. When something is impure, it cannot draw near to God to worship him. An impure thing cannot even be in his presence. Now this makes it sound like a really depressing book, right? Leviticus is about how everything gets impure very easily. And when it's impure, you cannot draw near to a holy God. But Leviticus is not a book of bad news. It's a book full of reasons to rejoice. Because yes, creation is infected and polluted and unclean. But we don't worship a God who abandons creation when it goes wrong. We worship a God who redeems, who provides, and who makes things new again. In the book of Leviticus, God shows his people that the way to remove impurity from themselves and the world around them is to follow the directions that he gives them. He gives them sacrifices. And you can think of these. We talked about God's holiness being like the sun. The sacrifices are kind of like sunblock, right? They can, if they, if they, they practice the sacrifices, if they offer up to the Lord what he's told them to, then it kind of smooths over their ability to be near or close to him. They smooth over the difference of a people prone to impurity in the holy God who dwells among them. There's a verse that sums up most of Leviticus. It's a theme that's repeated over and over again. It's Leviticus 11:45. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore be holy because I am holy. Now this is easy to misunderstand. God does not tell his people that they can make themselves holy. That's not what's happening. Only he can do that. Their job is to stay pure, and he will make them holy. And they're to keep creation pure, 
and he will make it holy. And so holiness gets everywhere in the book of Leviticus. There's holy space, places that are considered holy. There's holy times, days that are kept and thought of as holy. There are things that are important for the worship of God that are holy. So that promise that God hasn't abandoned, but will always make us holy and use us to make the world holy, is why David, when he thinks about Leviticus, can say, Oh, how I love your law. How does that apply to today at all? On this side of the cross. Well, we're going to talk about that quite a bit in the next month. But the book of Leviticus reminds us of so many things that God cares deeply about our bodies. He cares deeply about what we do. Now, these are not things that that can cause us to no longer be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. But it's important to know that holiness is important to the Lord. And he calls us to it every day. So the book of Numbers, Numbers is when everything goes wrong. When you're reading Genesis and Exodus, you get this hopeful feeling, this excited, victorious feeling, and then you get to the stories in Numbers, and everything has gone wrong. I'm going to read you from Numbers 14. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose another leader and go back to Egypt. In other words, they complain and grumble over and over again. Do you ever feel like if you were in these first few books of the Bible, if you were able to see the things they saw in Exodus that you'd never doubt again? Do you ever wonder if you saw God part the Red Seas and if you saw the the pillar of smoke and fire and the great presence of God descend on Mount Sinai, do you ever feel like, man, if I could see a miracle like that, I'd never question again? Numbers is the book that assures us that that is absolutely not the case. Because it turns out that it doesn't much matter what you've seen. When you're hot and hungry and thirsty and tired, you will complain. I do notice that it is the men who are complaining here. I don't know if we should read anything into that, but I think it is a confirmation for many of us of a very deep and spiritual truth. The men are the ones to bring up the complaint. But they say, despite everything God has done for them, despite the way that Moses has led them, we should choose another leader other than God's chosen one and go back to Egypt. And so God tells them because of this, because of their complaint, because of their bitterness and stiff-neckedness. Is that a word? I don't know. They're stiff-necked. That's what the scripture says. They're they're going to have to wait 40 years before they can go into the Holy Land. 40 years. And the reason for that is because all of the ones who are there that day giving complaint will then be gone. In 40 years, there'll be a new generation. A group that has not lifted up complaints. A group that has not 
turned away from the Lord's commands, a group that has not asked for another leader other than the one that they were given, a group that has not rebelled. And so, Numbers is the story of how everything falls apart. You might ask, how is this good news? How is this a story that can make David say, I love your law and meditate on it, meditate on it all day long? There's a few things here that Numbers teaches us. First, Numbers teaches us to accept what God offers. You see, we frequently overlook the importance of the Word of God. It is so easy to forget how magnificent a thing this is. I think that part of the reason for that is because it's so available. Most of you right now have a phone in your pocket with thousands of different ways to read the scriptures, whether it be a variety of translations or programs or websites or apps. We all have Bibles, so many Bibles close to us. We have no felt need, scarcity for the Word of God. It's so abundant. And I think one of the things that that has done has caused us to not remember its importance. But this is the spiritual food that God has given us. He encourages us to read his words, to take them in, to be changed by them. In fact, David, in his psalm, in verse 103, he says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. God offers us his words, his wisdom, and we can find them in his book. Could you imagine how much you'd want to talk to him if he was here? If someone told you that the Lord was waiting for you in the other room, how far, how fast you'd go to speak with him. And we have so much that he's said to us already that we're called to take in, to meditate on, to chew on, and be formed by. There's another thing that Numbers teaches us to accept. Many of us have experienced hard times and hard things. And it's easy today in our culture to think that our life is supposed to be good and easy. There's this idea in American culture that if something is hard, then it's wrong. But you see, God's priority for us is not our never-ending happiness. His call and goal for us is our holiness. He wants our connection to him to be the thing that defines us most. And if our life was just easy all the time, blessing after blessing with no hardship, well, I think you know, don't you? When are the times that you go running hardest to God? Is it when everything is right? Is it when everything is easy? Or is it in the midst of the trial? Is it in the midst of suffering that we go most to the Lord? What Numbers teaches us is that even in the midst of those times, to see them is opportunities to draw nearest to him. To grab hold of and be changed by him. That when life is hardest, God is closest. Not because he's moved, but because it's easier for us to look for, see him, 
and grab hold. The book of Numbers teaches us to accept what God offers, and sometimes those are easy and good days, and sometimes those are hardships. And then we have the book of Deuteronomy. David meditates on the law. He keeps it. He obeys it. He even feasts on it. And there's a word that comes to mind for me from the New Testament that the Lord tells his apostles that they're supposed to do in the middle of a feast. Do you remember? He tells them to remember. At the Last Supper, he tells them to remember. And that remembering isn't just a memory thing. It isn't just have that memory to call on. It isn't just read, read the, the scriptures once so that you can, you can call them to memory. Remembering in the Bible is something much deeper and much more impactful than that. It's about putting ourselves there. It's about realizing that the promises to one people are the promises to all of God's people. It's about remembering that when the Lord speaks of his presence and love and faithfulness to his disciples, he's speaking of those things to us as well. When you remember, you make something present and real again. Every year on our anniversary, Lisa and I have a habit. We, we miss some years, but we usually do. We take out our wedding album. This year, because it was our 10th, we did something different. We looked at our wedding video, and that was a neat thing. Ten years ago, some of you are in it. We got to see you come in and sit down. I, I, Morgan is here today. Morgan is in the video. She's a lot smaller, littler, and shorter then, but, but she's there. And it's this incredible thing. I could have told you most of what we heard. I could have called it forward from memory, but there's something about the reliving it that's powerful, that makes it present that reminds us of our vows, our covenant to one another, and our love for each other. The pictures do the same. They call forward affection and commitment, covenant and love. We're called to remember. There's this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10, where Moses is speaking to the next generation of Israelites. Now most of them were not there at Mount Sinai. Most of them did not receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord. Because remember, they're in the desert for 40 years. Most of them are gone. But he says to that group, he says, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Mount Sinai. Remember the day you stood before the Lord. He tells them they were there. The book of Deuteronomy is a sermon by Moses to God's people. And he tells them many things that are just really, really amazing and important. And we're going to go through them. But the most significant piece of it is this. The call to remember. Remember the day that the Lord said to you that he'll be with you. Always. Remember the day that Jesus called you. Remember the day as you read the scriptures 
that he spoke to you, called you to him, called you to repentance and faith. And as you read these stories, remember the day that you were there. When we take communion, we talk about remembering, but it's important that we don't remember it as something that happened to someone else. But we remember that God's works, his power, his miracles, those are things that were done not just for them, but also for us. God's work is continuing. It never stops. And he calls us always to remember. The first five books of the Bible are incredible. And they tell the story of an amazing God. A God whose creation goes awry, but he doesn't abandon them. He's a God who renews. A God who gives. A God who redeems. And I hope that as we go through these books in the next three months, that you're moved to read them yourselves, to be challenged by them, to encounter the Lord that's present in them, to be moved and be changed. I think that you'll be blessed during the series. Ben and I are both very excited about it. But what I want you to remember today is that God never abandons. He's always with. He always renews. He always provides. And he always redeems. Pray with me. Father God, we come before you thankful for blessings. You are so good. And we praise you. And Lord, we just ask that you would convict us to read, to dive in, to encounter, meditate on, and be changed by your word. That we would love it as David did. That we would be lit on fire by it. That we'd be encouraged and filled up. Lord, we pray that this week, if we don't have a habit of regular reading, that you'd call us to it. Lord, that you would be glorified in the midst of our diving into and being changed by your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.